from Exodus 2, verses 1 through 10. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Uh, when I was growing up, there was a, a family friend uh, that we all had, and we used to go and walk their dog. Uh, and I remember one weekend we went to walk the dog, and the dog was called Bracken. Uh, and I was 11 years old, and we went to the woods with Bracken. And we'd been walking for maybe 30 or 40 minutes, and suddenly Bracken disappeared. And we couldn't find Bracken. We uh, searched and we searched and we searched and we searched all around the wood, trying to find this chocolate Labrador, which is very hard to find in a wood. Uh, and we couldn't find her at all. We, we rather embarrassingly called our owners and said, look, we think that we might have lost your prized possession, your beloved dog. Uh, and they came and they joined the hunt. Uh, and we bumped into one of my old primary school teachers. Uh, and then they joined the hunt. And gradually the search party grew and grew and grew. Uh, and we'd been looking for Bracken for maybe two, two and a half hours. All, me, my brother, my sister were all in floods of tears thinking that we had finally lost this dog. Eventually, we found, or someone else found, Bracken, and she'd fallen off the side of a cliff, but not a very big cliff, don't panic. You can look slightly less concerned. The cliff was maybe four feet, five feet uh, high, uh, and there was a, a good ledge on it before it got much, much more serious. Uh, and Bracken was uh, over the side of this cliff, completely petrified, so scared that she wouldn't even bark so we could find her. Uh, and someone uh, jumped uh, off down onto the ledge, and they lifted up this shaking chocolate Labrador and returned it to safety and to security. And unsurprisingly, for the rest of Bracken's life, she went nowhere near the edge of a cliff. See, because Bracken knew the danger now of going over the edge of a cliff. She learned that if she fell, there was no way that she was going to get herself back to safety. Bracken was a rescued dog. Uh, she had been in uh, real danger, and she'd been taken out of that to a place of safety, and now she decided never to go anywhere near the danger again. Sometimes you and me can act like people who've been taken out of danger and into safety. As people whose uh, primary identity is of those who've been rescued. Sometimes we can read this passage this morning and think that the whole story is about rescue, about someone who was taken from danger into safety. 
I don't think that's the full picture of what God is doing this morning in this passage and he's speaking to us. Sometimes we act like people who've been taken from danger into safety and we decide to retreat into our own comfortable Christian worlds. And we only speak with people uh, who believe the same things that we believe and agree with us on all the issues. And uh, maybe you have uh, people at work who you know are a bit antagonistic towards you and your faith or maybe a, a friend or a family member and you deliberately shrink back and you don't talk about your faith because you just want to keep yourself safe because you once were in danger and now you want to be as safe as possible. Maybe uh, you deliberately insulate yourself. Maybe your wealth, your status, use that to put as much distance between yourself and danger as possible. And so you try and keep yourself as comfortable and safe and as secure as you can possibly be. I don't think that's the way that you and me as Christians are called to live. And I don't think that's what God is saying in this passage at all. I don't think God is removing Moses from danger to safety. And I don't think Jesus came so we could be in a relationship with him and be perfectly safe. I think what God did is God redeemed us. He redeemed us. He changed our standing before him and our relationship with the world so that now we're not concerned about how safe we can be. We're not trying to retreat and withdraw, but instead we step towards dangerous places and dangerous situations, knowing that because we're loved and known and accepted by God, the world holds no fear for us. Uh, this morning, we're not talking about someone who was rescued, taken from danger to safety, but someone who was able to be in the most dangerous place and yet still be safe because God had redeemed that situation and that place for them. Uh, let's take a, a kind of run up to the passage this morning before we get to the 10 uh, verses that we're looking at. Uh, you might um, know this story. It could be uh, very familiar uh, to you, but the, the Israelites have been living peacefully in Egypt for, for a reasonable length of time. Uh, but the, the Pharaoh, the Egyptian king of the time, uh, thought the Israelites were a threat uh, to his nation's security uh, because they were uh, multiplying at a faster rate than the Egyptians. Uh, so the number of Israelites in the land of Egypt were growing and growing and growing, uh, and the Pharaoh panicked. And he thought, well, if we get attacked by someone, then these Israelites might rise up against us and join the attacking force, and then we'll be overthrown. Uh, so what uh, the Pharaoh does uh, is he enslaves the Israelites. Uh, it says uh, he puts slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built uh, Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. So he enslaves the, Egypt the Israelites, but that doesn't work. There's a beautiful uh, couple of verses which says, uh, the more that he oppressed them, the more they multiplied. The more that the people of God are oppressed, the more they multiply. Uh, we see that same pattern all around the world, don't we? The persecuted church is oppressed. It's beaten down, and yet still they multiply. Uh, do you know, uh, the more that you and me uh, are oppressed, the more difficult our lives become. The rhythm that we see in the Bible is the more fruitful we are. Sometimes we think that things go wrong and that's the worst possible scenario. But what if God's primary concern for us wasn't that we were safe, but that we were fruitful? The more that we're oppressed, the more that we multiply. Uh, and so Pharaoh tries to oppress and squash uh, the Israelite people and they continue to multiply. Uh, so he does uh, something that takes it up at a level. Uh, and he says, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. 
You can let the girls live because the expectation is that they won't join an army and fight. It's the boys who are dangerous. So Pharaoh says, we need to take out the young boys who might one day grow into soldiers. Pharaoh has a hard and a cold and a dark heart, and he's creating a culture and a climate of fear and oppression, and it's into that world that Moses is born. (laughs) Moses, a Hebrew boy born into a world that's looking out to kill small Hebrew boys. Moses is born into a dangerous time, a dangerous place. He is the very uh, worst uh, kind of person to be born in that society. Uh, And then we come to our passage, uh, and it opens with, Now a a man of the tribe uh, of Levi, now a man of the tribe of Levi, married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Uh, When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Uh, Moses' mother uh, takes him and she hides him until he grows too uh, big and too noisy to be hidden anymore. Uh, The boy uh, grows a set of lungs on him and he starts to cream and to shriek and to howl. And she starts to realize that uh, if I keep this boy in my house, then I'm not just endangering him, but I'm endangering myself as well. So she comes up uh, with a a cunning plan. Uh, Pharaoh wants uh, the boys to be uh, hurled into the river. But in an act of kindness and incredible bravery, Moses' mother does something that stays just about within the rules enough to keep everybody safe. Uh, when she could hide him no longer, the passage says, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Uh, his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Pharaoh wants uh, the young boys, the baby boys, to be hurled into the Nile where they will surely die. Uh, But uh, Moses' mother is too kind and too clever and too uh, insightful for that, so she crafts for him a waterproof basket. Uh, And she puts that waterproof basket not in the fast-flowing part of the Nile, uh, but instead in the reeds where the water is calm and steady. Uh, The water that uh, moves so gently that it's safe enough for a baby to be in and maybe even for a princess to bathe. And so uh, Moses' mother leaves, and she leaves Moses' sister keeping watch to make sure that the baby is safe. Uh, and then, uh, almost providentially, the daughter of Pharaoh walks in. And she comes with her whole entourage, and uh, between them they spot this basket nestling in the reeds. Uh, and one of them goes to uh, open and to see what's in the basket, and they recognize that it's a small boy, a small Hebrew boy. And they start to discuss amongst themselves what to do with this child. And then Moses' sister overhears, and she walks in and makes a suggestion. She says, well, as this is a Hebrew boy, why don't we get a Hebrew mother to take care of him? And the daughter of the Pharaoh thinks that this is a a fantastic idea, and she says, yes, go. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to the mother, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Moses goes from being a wanted man, from being born into an empire that's condemning him to death, to now he can walk freely in the house of Pharaoh. You see, Moses hasn't been taken out of danger 
the place that's the most dangerous for him has now been made safe. Uh, God isn't uh, removing us and extracting us from this world and taking us uh, to a far-off place, to a cloud somewhere, uh, but instead God is redeeming us and he's restoring us. And not so that we can go and uh, live in isolation and build walls, but so that we can go out into the world as people who have been redeemed, uh, people who have nothing to fear because of the goodness of God. Uh, Moses has been more than rescued, he's been redeemed. Uh, His old status has been revoked. He's gone from being one of the most vulnerable children in Egypt to one of the safest, protected by the power and also the purse of the Pharaoh, the very person who would have had Moses killed. He's now in the place where he should be in the greatest danger, a Hebrew boy in the house of Pharaoh, but Moses' situation has been completely changed. It's been redeemed. The story that God weaves throughout Scripture isn't just about rescue. Yes, we believe in a God of rescue, but it's not just about making your and my life more comfortable, but it's about stretching down into our world and redeeming it. God doesn't have a divine escape plan for you and for me where we go and live happily ever after somewhere. But Romans 8.21 says this. It says, The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the liberty of the glory of the children of God. Heaven isn't a place somewhere out there, out on the other side of the cosmos, if you go far enough past the North Star, but God is going to restore and renew this earth, this world. And as uh, children, as sons and daughters of God, we're called to represent the kingdom that he's bringing. Uh, That kingdom is about the redemption and the renewal of all things, uh, of our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, our relationship with the earth, all of creation, uh, the soil, the sea, the land, all of the living things that live in this earth. God is renewing it all. And that means that you and me, when we go out into the world, are meant to be a reflection of God's renewal of his redemption. If God was just rescuing us, that would mean that you and me could store up vast sums of money just to keep ourselves as safe as we possibly could. It would mean that we would stay in our own enclaves where no one would challenge us or provoke us, where we would just be as safe as we possibly could be. But But that's not what God did for us or through us. That's not what we see him do in scripture. But instead he renews and he redeems and he restores. And he calls us to go back out into the world. Even if we feel vulnerable and fragile and unsafe, God reminds us that he has renewed and restored us. I just want to uh, highlight three things, uh, kind of either side of this passage this morning. Uh, The first is I don't think that God is rescuing uh, Moses and the Israelites uh, from Egypt because God sent them into Egypt in the first place. You don't rescue people that you sent somewhere. Uh, Genesis 46 uh, said this. Uh, So uh, God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am. Uh, Here I am, he replied. I am the God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again, and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Israel didn't end up in Egypt by mistake. They didn't sin and somehow find themselves in slavery. There wasn't something that went wrong, suddenly they found themselves there, but God sends them into Egypt. And as God sends them into Egypt, he says, I will be there with you. 
He doesn't abandon them. He doesn't forget about them. He doesn't leave them in Egypt for eternity, but he says, I will be there with you. And then he says, I will lead you out of Egypt. And he says, while you're there, I'm going to make you into a great nation, into a place of difficulty and suffering and hardship. That's the place that I will make you into a great nation. The more you're oppressed, the more you will multiply. God doesn't rescue them from Egypt, but he sends them there. He goes with them. He leads them into Egypt, knowing that life will be difficult and hard, but he promises to remain with them. Uh, God doesn't uh, rescue the Israelites from Egypt uh, because he's the one who sends them there in the first place. And then at the right time, he's the one who leads them out. Uh, And as God uh, leads them uh, into Egypt, uh, all the time he's there, he's teaching them that he is the only true God. Uh, We see an inference of that in our passage this morning. Uh, As Moses' mother uh, puts the basket into the Nile, uh, she's surrendering Moses. Uh, The Egyptians believed uh, that there was a a God of the Nile. Uh, And as Moses' mother puts uh, the baby uh, into the river, she's surrendering him and she's giving up uh, all her power and all of her control over this baby at the hands of this God of the Nile. And this God is completely silent. It does nothing. It has the uh, the small baby that's going to lead the Israelites out of slavery, and yet the God of the Nile is completely silent. God is dethroning the Egyptian gods. Later on, he's going to uh, do it through ten plagues, but even right here at the beginning, uh, the Egyptian gods are oddly silent, oddly impotent, oddly doing nothing. Uh, even at this uh, beginning of the story, uh, God is hinting at the things that are coming up later on. He's saying, these Egyptian gods have nothing on me. Uh, God leads them uh, into, into Egypt. Uh, and as he leads them there, he undermines and he dethrones the Egyptian gods. And he reminds them, I am the only king. He's saying, this place that you think is dangerous, it's, it's nothing. It's not so bad, really. I'm the only true God, the only true king. And then it's, uh, God leads them as he dethrones their gods. Uh, God undermines the very heart of the king. Uh, from out uh, of the genocidal heart of Egypt comes someone who is kind and compassionate. Uh, the daughter of Pharaoh has grown up uh, in a house where uh, uh, sentencing children to death is completely normal. That's an acceptable thing to do. That's what the Pharaoh is doing. And the the daughter of the Pharaoh has grown up uh, in this house. Uh, And yet somehow she has remained kind and generous. Somehow, even when she sees this little boy who she immediately recognizes as a Hebrew, uh, her response isn't to go and uh, give him to her father and have him killed, but her response is to adopt him into her family. Her response is to make sure that this little boy is taken care of. That the heart of the Pharaoh is cruel and dark. It's hard. And yet from that family, something kind and compassionate comes. The story of God reminds us that love always wins. That there's no rule, there's no law that can defeat kindness or tenderness or generosity. Uh, nothing can beat uh, love and compassion. Even the, the dark heart of a king who's uh, trying to kill all of the young Hebrew boys, even, even that can't compete with the love and the kindness of God. 
You see, God leads the Israelites into Egypt. He dethrones their gods while they're there. And all along the way, he's reminding them that love always wins. The movement here isn't from danger to safety. It's from danger to redemption. God makes even the most difficult places safe for us. Because we've been loved and accepted by God. Our standing before him has been completely changed. Not so we can live in our own isolated worlds, but so we can go back into the places that were once dangerous for us, knowing that God goes with us. That while we're there, even if it's difficult, he still uses it for his good. The more they are oppressed, the more they multiply. And in those places that the love of God always wins. If we were a people of rescue, then we would see the stories in the news, the story of Grenfell Tower. If we were a people of rescue, we would see that story, and our response would be just to go home and to make sure that our homes were safe, to make sure that the cladding on our houses wasn't flammable and that we would be fine. Now, that, that might be uh, part of an appropriate response, but there's another side to that as well. See, because we've not just been rescued, but we've been redeemed. And so because we've been redeemed, that means that we want to see the whole of creation, uh, all of the world redeemed. And that means we have something to say when people prioritize profit over people's safety. Uh, that means that uh, we aren't silent on those kinds of issues. Uh, when someone says that uh, the bottom line is more important than the welfare of people, we as the church collectively and as individuals have something to say about that. Uh, that means that we campaign. That means that we make a noise and we say that this is unacceptable. That the trajectory of the world is not the way that God intends it to be and that we don't just want to keep ourselves safe, but we want to renew and restore and see redeemed the systems that uh, afflict and marginalize vulnerable people. We don't just insulate ourselves. If we were a people of rescue, solely of rescue, then when we saw a hungry person on the street, we would remember that we needed to get food in our cupboards because we wanted to keep ourselves safe and insulated and protected. But if we were redeemed, then we would gather people here on a Saturday afternoon and we would feed them and we would care for them because we would recognize that there was something more important than just caring for ourselves, but uh, we needed to go out there with the love and the kindness and the good news of Jesus and see people's circumstances and situations get transformed. Uh, I wonder if you can see uh, an area in your life uh, where you're trying to insulate yourself and just keep yourself safe. Uh, maybe you're um, hoarding uh, sums of money in your account in case someday something goes wrong. Uh, and the, the reason for doing that is fear. Because maybe something bad will happen, but, but maybe that's not the redeemed life that God is calling us to live. Uh, maybe uh, you have children or, or grandchildren, young people's lives you're invested in, and your main concern uh, is making sure that they don't hang out with uh, kids from the dodgy part of town because you don't want them rubbing off on your children. You just want to keep your uh, child, your grandchild as safe as possible. Obviously, keeping your child safe is a really important thing, but, but do we uh, insulate them so much that we remove them from the world and, and we don't trust that God is good and gracious and kind? I wonder where uh, in your home, in your family, maybe in your work situation, uh, you need to uh, not be governed by fear and retreat and trying to keep yourself safe, uh, but instead you need to go with the grace and the love and the mercy of God. Amen.